Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board certified physicians who can prescribe FDA approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. As midnight approached on New Year's Eve 1920, the wail of sirens and foghorns echoed up the River Liffey from Dublin Port as the ships docked at the North Wall welcomed in the new year of 1921. The celebrations elsewhere in the city, however, were muted. The military curfew in place prohibited all public celebrations across Ireland. Indeed, in Belfast, when a journalist ventured out into the city after the curfew came into effect, they only came across two people, both walking alone. In what was an eerie experience, both were singing Old Lang Syne, the words echoing through the deserted streets. While people did mark the passing of 1920 behind closed doors, few had any illusions that anything would be different when they woke the following morning in 1921. In recent weeks, it had been clear the Irish War of Independence was, if anything, going to escalate in the coming year. The failure of peace talks in early December had left the British government convinced the only strategy was to press on with the war. In the final week of the year, around 20 people had been killed in violent clashes across Ireland. The worst incident had seen Crown forces kill five IRA volunteers during a raid and a secret Republican fundraising dance at Brough in County Limerick. The following week, the war moved from 1920 to 1921 seamlessly. On the first day of the new year, seven people were killed. These included two IRA volunteers and a student killed by Crown forces, the latter beaten to death by the police in Listowel, County Kerry. On that same day, the IRA killed two RIC members and two suspected informers, one each in Tipperary and Roscommon. January the 2nd was unusual. No fatalities were recorded, but within a week, another 10 people had been shot dead. Amidst this continuing violence, it was difficult to see the wood from the trees and gain an understanding or perspective on the war. The conflict, now entering its third year, in many ways appeared not to have changed much. True, the death toll had increased, but it seemed it was settling into an interminable war with comparatively small numbers of casualties, a war that could continue almost endlessly. However, 1921 would not be the same. The conflict was changing and the future did not look good for the Irish Republican movement. Despite a year of mixed fortunes in 1920, it finally seemed the British Crown forces had their house in order and were ready to step up the war. This would see much larger operations than in previous years of the conflict. Airplanes, the occasional tanks and thousands of soldiers would now be used 
the Republican movement were going to face a very different enemy, leaving many to wonder if they could survive such an onslaught. Hello and welcome to the Irish History Podcast. My name is Finn Dewar and this is the War of Independence, Part 22. This podcast takes the story into January 1921 and the final year of the war. This was a deeply concerning time for the Irish Republican movement. This episode looks at how the better armed, better organised and better resourced British army were about to escalate the war in the new year. Everything from summary executions, blockading villages and towns which supported the IRA and even concentration camps have been suggested by senior figures in Britain. However, the Republican movement were not entirely powerless in resisting these measures. As we'll see, Irish Americans in particular will play an important role in influencing these events and the general trajectory of the war in 1921. This episode is part 22 of the War of Independence series and will be the last one of 2021. There are four episodes yet to come in the overall series and these four are heavily interlinked and I won't get them all out before Christmas so I thought it best to break at this point rather than in the middle of the final four. In the coming weeks I have a few special episodes that will lead us into Christmas. One is a fascinating interview with Theresa Hill about her experiences of growing up black and Irish in Liverpool in the 1970s and 80s. The second is a fascinating show. It's on the story of the ladies of Langollen, two Irish women who ran away together in the 18th century. This was recorded in the house where they lived at Plas in Wales. I'm also currently working on a schedule of shows for 2022. If you follow me on Twitter or Instagram, that's Irish History at both, you'll know that when the War of Independence series ends, I'm doing something completely different. That's a series on the story of the Bruce invasion, which took place between 1315 and 1318. It's one of my favourite events from medieval history and will be some much needed escapism from the modern world. I'm also getting the sense that the War of Independence series might have been a bit too long and you'd prefer shorter series. So I'm thinking this one will be about five episodes long. If you've any thoughts on this or other ideas for podcasts in 2022, now is a good time to get in touch. Email me at info at irishhistorypodcast.ie. This is also a good time to mention Acast Plus and Patreon. Starting new series always have big costs associated with them in terms of getting books and resources. The Bruce Invasion has already set me back a few hundred euros and I haven't written a single word. I'd forgotten how pricey medieval history texts can be. I presume it's because they come out in shorter print runs, but they're also less likely to be available in ebook formats for some reason as well. If you can support the show, it really helps on that front. You can find out more at patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast or Acast Plus. There's links in the show notes below. Finally, Christmas is upon us, so don't forget to treat the history fan in your life to something nice. We have a great range of presents at irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop. Everything from replica posters from the Irish Revolution, there's some Irish History Podcast merch, there's the unique pins of Irish historical figures. We've actually launched four new pins of James Connolly, Countess Markovich and the Starry Plough. They look great. And there's also a huge range of books. Check that out today at irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop. That's irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop. Now to the episode. Two key texts I used in this episode were Michael Hopkinson's The Irish War of Independence and William Sheehan's British Voices from the Irish War of Independence. 
Additional research was by Sam McGrath. Additional narrations are by Aidan Crow and Therese Murray. And the sound is by Jason Looney. On January the 6th, 1921, a crowd gathered in the small railway station at the edge of Tipperary Town. With all eyes fixed firmly on the horizon at the end of the tracks, an unquestionable sense of anticipation pervaded the crowd. The excitement grew when the steam engine finally came into view, hauling its carriages. On the platform, a photographer scrambled into position to capture what was about to unfold. When the train finally reached the platform, the doors opened, some passengers alighted, others boarded the train, and the photographer captured the scene in a grainy image. Then the signal was given, the driver engaged the engine, and the train slowly pulled out of the station. Satisfied at the morning's events, the people who had gathered in the Tipperary town station then went about their business. The whole morning's events were, to an extent, bemusing. No one of particular interest had either boarded or alighted the train that had pulled up in the station. It had actually been the train, or more so its very arrival, that had been the spectacle that had brought people to the station. While the rhythms of daily life in small rural towns like Tipperary had been marked for decades by the regular arrival and departure of trains, it had been a rarity in recent months. Indeed, the arrival of that train on January the 4th was the first the people of Tipperary town had seen in five months. Now, while this might seem like a relatively mundane development, it was deeply worrying for the IRA, not only in Tipperary, but across the island. During the summer of 1920, dockers and railway workers had refused to handle or work on trains carrying British military equipment or soldiers. This strike spread and had a huge impact on the ability of the army to move men and materials around the island. It also had the knock-on impact of making Crown forces move around on roads which left them far more vulnerable to IRA ambushes. The government had responded first by sacking the workers and then by shutting down large sections of the railway. This policy proved extremely effective. While it left the workers impoverished, sections of wider society dependent on trains became increasingly vocal in their opposition to the strike. In November, a special conference of the Irish Transport and General Workers' Union agreed to negotiate an end to the strike and in the following weeks, the railway network began to return to normal. By January 1921, passenger trains were appearing in rural Irish stations again. However, alongside these passenger trains, shipments of munitions and soldiers were now able to move around Ireland once more. This was coming at the worst time possible for the Republican movement. It seemed by 1921, after two years of warfare, the Crown forces were slowly but surely eradicating the various problems that had dogged their operations to date. One major issue had been who exactly was running the war. In 1919 and through much of 1920, the army and the police had been at loggerheads, but by January 1921, this also appeared to be somewhat resolved. The demands of the army to be given greater control over the wider war were finally being granted. The declaration of martial law across the southwest on December 10th was extended to four more counties, Kilkenny, Wexford, Waterford and Clare, on January 5th. Now, problems did remain on this front, not helped by an acrimonious relationship between the Commander-in-Chief in in Ireland, Sir Neville Macready, and the Chief of Police, Henry Hugh Tudor. But there was no question the military were being given a greater and greater role and influence over the conflict. Further to this, a series of appointments in the British administration in Dublin 
through 1920 were starting to have an effect. At the start of the war, for example, the administration of Lord John French had been nothing short of disastrous. Blinded by sectarianism, they had been suspicious of all Catholics and had even forced John Byrne, the Inspector General of the RIC, from office in late 1919. Other Catholics, such as the Under Secretary for Ireland, James McMahon, was not trusted and subsequently not listened to. However, in 1920, there had been a major regime change in Dublin Castle. Sir Neville Macready was appointed Commander-in-Chief, and while the well-connected Lord John French, the inept Lord Lieutenant, was not removed from office, he was sidelined. Meanwhile, a team of more effective civil servants in John Anderson, Mark Sturgis and Andrew Cope took over the running of the British administration in Ireland. Henry Hugh Tudor and Ormond Winter took over the running of the police. And these appointments, while they had taken time to bed in, were starting to have an impact. Ormond Winter, for example, was rebuilding the intelligence division of the police with some successes. On New Year's Eve, he had coordinated a raid on the apartment of Eileen McGrain on Dawson Street in Dublin. McGrain was a key Republican intelligence operative and the raid captured numerous sensitive IRA intelligence documents. A few weeks later, this was followed up by a raid on a house being used by the IRA Chief of Staff, Richard Mulcahy, the second such raid in three months, and here too, more documents were seized. Arrests of Republicans and suspected Republicans was also continuing apace. By the middle of January, nearly 1,500 activists had been interned since Bloody Sunday. Now, a year earlier, the government had also interned large numbers of Republicans, but things were different in early 1921. Back in 1920, the IRA prisoners had been able to secure their freedom through mass hunger strikes. However, the deaths of Terence McSweeney and several other Cork Republicans while on hunger strike in late 1920 had made this tactic moribund. There was no question that these were more solid foundations for a major military operation that was being planned in 1921 and there was a growing confidence that this would deliver victory for the Crown forces. Even leading Republicans knew it. In December 1920, Michael Collins had admitted that he thought the British Army could win the war when he said, It is too much to expect that Irish physical force could combat successfully English physical force for any length of time if the directors of the latter could get a free hand for ruthlessness. In many ways... The outcome of the war was going to hinge on this ability of the Crown forces to get a free hand at ruthlessness, as Collins referenced. But this was by no means certain. While the Crown forces had laid better foundations for their 1921 campaign, there were still huge questions about how they would fight the IRA in terms of tactics and strategy. Would it suffice to simply continue what they had been doing, or should they dramatically alter this and adopt new strategies? There was differing opinions about this. Indeed, some wanted to adopt the most extreme military tactics imaginable. Central to the strategy of the British Crown forces through the second half of 1920 had been a policy of reprisals in response to IRA attacks. This had seen Crown forces exact vengeance on wider populations deemed to be supportive of the IRA. This policy appears to have been developed somewhat organically on the ground and through 1921 the government unofficially endorsed it by turning a blind eye. The most serious reprisal had seen the centre of Cork City burned in early December. Now this policy was disastrous in the court of public opinion. It did after all contravene the Hague Convention which governed how states should act in war. 
It also raised criticism from within the British Army for very different reasons, however. Some believed it wasn't very effective. Advocates of the policy had argued that it was a good way to break the wider support network crucial to IRA operations. Others, however, thought it counterproductive and despite their dominant position in 1921, if they continued with this strategy, it would not deliver victory. After the war, for example, Major Arthur Percival, an expert in counterinsurgency tactics who was stationed in Cork, gave voice to these criticisms. Percival, who had gained fame in the Second World War as commander of Singapore when the city fell to the Japanese, wrote a lengthy assessment of the war in Ireland and said, The attitude adopted by the Crown forces towards the ordinary inhabitant of the country varied very much in different localities. In some places the attitude taken up was the whole population was hostile and should be treated accordingly. However, he thought the policy of exacting reprisals on the population was counterproductive. He came to this belief by starting with an unusually honest assessment of the widespread popularity the Republican movement enjoyed in Ireland. The rebel campaign in Ireland was a national movement, backed by a large proportion of the population, and was not conducted by a few hired assassins, as often supposed. This then led him to advocate a more nuanced approach. To win the Crown forces, he thought, needed to split the Republican movement, and the policy of reprisals was having precisely the opposite impact. Now, Seamus Babington of the IRA's 3rd Tipperary Brigade also agreed with this assessment. We heard from Babington on this matter earlier in the series, but it's worth hearing from him again. When talking about the IRA attacks on Crown forces, he felt had they been used by the British authorities as propaganda to evoke sympathy, the reaction of the wider population could have been very different. Had the British used this propaganda instead of the manhunt and the wholesale raiding and opening of the floodgates of fury, it's possible the spirit would not rekindle like it did. But with their intensive hostile action, their ruthless treatment of the civil population, and their unbridled hatred of any suspects at genuine republicanism and nationalism, this open tyranny at the time was a godsend. For it engendered an amazing spirit in a section of lively young men of spirit. Even as late as January 1921, there was still scope for such a nuanced policy to have some effect on the support for the Republican movement. Because, as we'll see later, cracks were starting to emerge in their support base by this stage in the war. However, the views of Percival were very much in a minority within the Crown forces in 1921. The war was taking a very different direction. Bernard Montgomery, who would later emerge as the most famous British general, not only in the Second World War, but in the 20th century, was also serving in Ireland at this time. And he later described what was a far more common approach of commanders in Ireland. Personally, my whole attention was given to defeating the rebels, and it never bothered me about how many houses were burnt. I think I regarded all civilians as shinners, and I never had any dealing with them. Now, the British cabinet largely agreed with Montgomery rather than Percival, and in late December, they gave their formal backing to the policy of reprisals, guaranteeing it would remain central to how the Crown forces fought the war in the coming months and how they treated the wider population. Indeed, the first official reprisal took place a few days later, on December 29th, when six houses were demolished in Middleton after an IRA attack. However, the formal adoption of the policy of reprisals as the war was escalating inevitably led to the question as to how far the Crown forces were willing to go with reprisals. 
the nature of the reprisals to date hadn't really worked to any great effect. The burning of four acres of Cork City in December 1920 had had little or no impact in terms of undermining Republican support in the city. And through 1920, several key figures in the British establishment had argued much more extreme measures were needed. Henry Wilson, the chief of the Imperial General Staff, wanted to post lists of known Republicans on church doors. And then, in his words, Whenever a policeman is murdered, pick five by lot and shoot them. The Foreign Secretary, Lord Curzon, earlier in 1920, had demanded Crown forces adopt what he called Indian measures. Here, Curzon was referencing a brutal war then being fought in modern-day Pakistan, where villages were being besieged and blockaded to force the local population to submit and accept British rule. Meanwhile, not a man to be outdone when it came to such measures. Lord John French, the Lord Lieutenant of Ireland, had suggested the most extreme option. French was a veteran of the Second Boer War in South Africa, where the British Army had opened concentration camps and imprisoned huge numbers of the population to deny their support to the Boer army. This had resulted in the deaths of around 50,000 people from disease and malnutrition, but had eventually broken the resistance of the Boers. As early as February 1920, French suggested a similar strategy in Ireland to the then Chief Secretary, Ian Macpherson. They remained conquered until we wired them all up inside concentration camps. That is really how we won the Boer War, and it is the only way we will settle the business over here. Brutal as such a war would be, the measures suggested by the likes of French, Curzon and Wilson had been effective in other theatres of war, and there was no reason to believe they would not work in Ireland. However, Ireland in 1921 was not South Africa two decades earlier. The world had changed and the Irish War of Independence was one where public opinion across the world was a key factor in shaping the war. Bernard Montgomery summarised this best when he said, Cromwell or the Germans would have settled it in a very short time. Nowadays, public opinion precludes such methods. The nation would never allow it and the politicians would lose their jobs if they sanctioned it. Therefore, the contours of the escalating war in 1921 would be, as Montgomery said, shaped by public opinion. The British Crown forces could only pursue tactics that would be tolerated by public opinion, and it was almost impossible to hide atrocities in Ireland in the way they could be in more distant parts of the empire. This had been clearly illustrated back in September 1920, when the RIC attacked the town of Balbriggan outside Dublin. In the aftermath of the attack, it was not only reported in the Irish press, but also English journalists had been able to travel to Ireland and report on the story. Within a few days, graphic accounts of the attack on Balbriggan, along with pictures, appeared in The Guardian, and within a week, the Irish Republican, Darrell Fidges, was addressing a meeting of several thousand people in Liverpool. While the British government were concerned about public opinion in Britain, equally, if not more important, was actually public opinion in the United States. As the war developed in 1921, this would be central to shaping the war. And while the British Crown forces appeared to be gaining an upper hand in Ireland, Irish Republicans were highly effective in mobilising support on the far side of the Atlantic. Now to fully appreciate this and how it could affect the war in coming months, we need to reintroduce the President of the Doyle and the man who was, theoretically at least, the most senior Irish Republican, Eamon de Valera. Hold up. 
Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Recently, I had a minor argument with a close friend that brought up things from my past that I really needed to get off my chest. I think we've all been there. Now, I found therapy a really great way to work through these issues. For me, I really like online therapy, and BetterHelp is a really great online service that allows you to make space for therapy no matter how busy you are. BetterHelp is convenient, affordable, and gives you the support you need, but also works around your schedule. It's really easy to get up and running with a therapist on BetterHelp. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do your sessions by text, phone, or video call, whichever suits you best. It's all about flexibility, working around your schedule. At the moment, BetterHelp are offering listeners to the show 10% off their first month. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash irishhistory today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash irishhistory. The Irish War of Independence took place to the backdrop of a major shift in the balance of power in the world. The First World War had been devastating for the old powers of Europe. The German Empire, the Austro-Hungarian Empire and the Ottoman Empire had all collapsed. By 1921, Russia appeared to be breaking up amidst a bloody civil war between Bolshevik and anti-Bolshevik forces. Even the victorious European powers, France and the United Kingdom, emerged severely weakened and massively in debt. The United States, however, had had a very different experience of the conflict. Far from the battlefields of Europe, its casualties were comparatively limited and economically, the war had benefited US industry. By 1919, it had emerged as the most powerful and influential country in the world. In this context, the British government always considered how any given action in Ireland might be viewed in the USA. Time and again, American opinion was referenced by politicians in their considerations. In the last episode, we saw how it was one of the reasons why they passed the Government of Ireland Act. Likewise, the Irish Republican movement was equally aware of the importance of US opinion, and to this end, Eamon de Valera had taken the controversial decision to travel to the US after his dramatic escape from Lincoln Jail, as covered in episode 5 of the series. Now, while many Irish Republican leaders wanted him to remain in Ireland, 
De Valera had been insistent his place was in the USA and he had crossed the Atlantic in the summer of 1919. He would ultimately spend 18 months there up until December 1920, raising both political and financial support for Irish independence. Basing himself in the plush Waldorf Astoria Hotel in Manhattan, De Valera toured constantly, speaking at rallies and lobbying politicians. Some of the crowds he drew were enormous. At his first public meeting, some 70,000 supporters of Irish independence turned out in Fenway Park in Boston to hear him speak. In terms of fundraising, the mission was an enormous success, with De Valera spearheading efforts that ultimately raised $5 million, although this was not without controversy. While many questioned how much of this money was being spent in the fancy hotels he frequented, getting this money to Ireland proved very difficult due to US laws about fundraising. However, in terms of the war in Ireland moving into 1921, his work in terms of raising political support was crucial. Ultimately, he received what could be described as a muted response from US politicians. Both the Republican and Democratic parties refused to support calls for the United States to recognise the Irish Republic. However, de Valera's mission enjoyed much greater success at a grassroots level, which would become increasingly important as the war escalated. His arrival in the US energised the Irish-American community. Elizabeth Gurley Flynn, an Irish-American communist, remembered the impact of his arrival in the US. The secret arrival of Eamon de Valera in June 1919 electrified the Irish movement and its American sympathisers. Headquarters were set up at the old Waldorf Astoria on 34th Street, and admirers gathered daily to see the tall form of the President of the Irish Republic stride down Fifth Avenue. In the following months, the efforts of de Valera and other Irish Republican leaders, such as Harry Boland and Liam Mellews, at mobilising working-class Irish Americans was extremely effective. And by the summer of 1920, Irish Americans in New York demonstrated their willingness to get involved in events on the far side of the Atlantic. In late August, they brought the plight of Ireland to the world stage when they successfully organised a strike of longshoremen on the Manhattan docks. In protest over events in Ireland, the longshoremen refused to offload any British ships in the harbour. Their specific grievances in August 1920 related to the treatment of the Irish Archbishop of Melbourne, Daniel Mannix, who had been banned from Ireland, and Terence McSweeney, who had started his hunger strike a few weeks earlier. The strike on the Manhattan docks was extensive, and not just limited to Irish Americans. Indeed, African-American longshoremen went on strike in solidarity, refusing to offload the Norman Monarch, a ship that arrived in New York from Britain during the strike. While the longshoremen would eventually go back to work in early September, this was a clear shot across the bows of the British government. Transatlantic trade, and specifically trade into Manhattan, was crucially important, and the fact that the working class of the city were staunchly supportive of Irish independence could not go ignored in London. While there was a limitation to the influence they could exert, for example, it didn't stop the British government letting Terence McSweeney die, it did have an impact. As the Irish-American communist Elizabeth Gurdy Flynn said, These demonstrations helped to stay the hand of England in Ireland to some extent. Indeed, through the autumn of 1920, there had been calls for the British government to officially back the policy of reprisals. However, Lloyd George had refused and waited until December, specifically because he wanted the US presidential election to be over before he made this controversial decision. 
In the final weeks of 1920, Eamon de Valera brought his US trip to a close and returned to Ireland. However, this didn't end the Irish Republican campaign in the United States. In the days before he left, Muriel and Moira McSweeney, the widow and sister of Terence McSweeney, had arrived in the city. They would travel the US, drawing huge crowds and kept Ireland front and centre in American news. Therefore, in early 1921, while the Crown forces were better prepared for the war than they had been at any other point in the conflict, they remained committed to what was a very problematic strategy from their own point of view. The current policy of reprisals, while extremely taxing on the population, did not appear to be enough to break support for the Republican movement. However, escalating this and adopting the extreme and brutal tactics such as those advocated by the likes of Lord John French could not be adopted either. The backlash across the world, if they did, would have been too great. This unquestionably levelled the playing field somewhat. However, before we can conclude today's episode, we need to look at some of the internal issues within the Republican movement in Ireland, because they too had their own problems. And the return of Eamon de Valera in late December 1920 crystallised what were long-running tensions within Irish Republicanism. By January 1921, there was no question that a series of interconnected and overlapping political disagreements and personal rivalries were creating increasing problems. Before we continue with the story today, this is just a quick reminder about the Irish History Summit that's coming up on January the 15th, 2022. The summit is a day-long series of talks being broadcast from the National Museum of Ireland in Collins Barracks. It's designed to help students prepare for the upcoming Leaving Cert exams, but the topics are fascinating and will be of interest to all history fans. We have talks on the Civil War, the Free State, the Nazis in power and the moon landing. There's so much in there. You can find full details of the speakers and topics at irishhistorysummit.eventbrite.ie. That's irishhistorysummit.eventbrite.ie. We have tickets for individuals and school classes. And there's an early bird offer running until November the 30th. So get your tickets today at irishhistorysummit.eventbrite.ie. That's irishhistorysummit.eventbrite.ie. Now, back to the show. The internal tensions within the Irish Republican movement that were coming to the fore in early 1921 have often been reduced down to a personalised rivalry between Michael Collins and Eamon de Valera. However, this masks what were far more fundamental questions about how the movement was organised and what tactics it should adopt. A growing problem, for example, centred around the continued existence of an organisation called the Irish Republican Brotherhood, or the IRB, this secret society had been founded in 1858 with the goal of establishing an Irish Republic by physical force. It had played a central role in revolutionary politics in Ireland in the 60 years leading up to the Irish War of Independence and had been the driving force behind events such as the 1916 Rising. However, its continued existence became a source of tension as the War of Independence developed. One major issue was the constitution of the IRB, which claimed its Supreme Council was the legitimate government of Ireland until one actually came into being. And from this, the IRB also argued that the president of its Supreme Council was the head of this Irish government. 
This became a serious issue in the aftermath of the 1919 election, when Irish Republicans who had won seats convened the Doyle, which declared itself the legitimate government of Ireland. This now called into question the claims of the IRB to be the legitimate government of Ireland, and several high-profile Republicans, including Eamon de Valera, Terence McSweeney, Cahill Brewer and Austin Stack, were vocal critics of the continued existence of the IRB. However, the Irish Republican Brotherhood did not dissolve itself, but did alter its constitution and swore allegiance to the Doyle. However, they included a suitably vague caveat that this was only conditional on the Doyle adhering to Republican principles. Unsurprisingly, in the following years, the IRB then emerged as something of a dual power structure within the Republican movement, with Michael Collins at its centre. He had been appointed President of the Supreme Council of the organisation in 1919. While Michael Collins used this position very effectively for gun running through old IRB contacts, it did create problems and exacerbated tensions within the Republican movement. It led to criticisms that Collins was exerting undue influence through this secret organisation. De Valera's return to Ireland in late 1920 only served to heighten this and other growing tensions within the movement. While he had long been critical of the IRB, De Valera felt increasingly threatened by Michael Collins. While de Valera was president of the Doyle, theoretically the most senior Republican, Collins was, by 1920, the Minister for Finance in the Doyle, the IRA Director of Intelligence and the President of the Supreme Council of the IRB. Indeed, not long after his return to Dublin, de Valera would suggest that Collins should take his place in America. Now, this was a really bizarre suggestion. Whatever criticisms people might have levelled at Michael Collins, then and since, there was no doubt his talents lay on a military front in Ireland, not in publicity or diplomacy in the US. Removing him in January 1921 would have been disastrous. Now, this suggestion went nowhere, but it did indicate tensions were rising between the two men. While the continued existence of the IRB was one problem, it dovetailed with other somewhat inevitable problems that emerged in the course of the war. For example, the Republican movement had expanded at an extraordinary rate in the later years of the First World War, and this somewhat inevitably led to a huge range of opinions within the movement. It was a very broad church. Therefore, it was no surprise that the internal cohesion of this movement came under severe strain as the war escalated, particularly in the later months of 1920. By January 1921, many IRA volunteers, for example, became openly critical of the efforts of political activists in Sinn Féin, dismissing their efforts as unimportant. Meanwhile, some in Sinn Féin were growing increasingly uneasy about the direction the war was taking. Bloody Sunday in particular had made some deeply uncomfortable and had led two Sinn Féin elected representatives to openly question the validity and morality of the operation. Meanwhile, de Valera, although not ideologically opposed to violence by any means, started to argue that guerrilla warfare was undermining the wider support for the movement internationally. He starts to argue for more conventional military operations which would see hundreds of IRA volunteers take on the British Crown forces. Now, in many ways, this only exposed how divorced de Valera had become from the realities of the war while he was in the USA. The reality was that the IRA had fought a guerrilla war because, in a conventional battle, the Crown Force's superior weaponry and training would be brought to bear and leave them at a huge disadvantage. Nevertheless, this debate would rumble on in the coming months as de Valera continued to insist on more conventional tactics. 
Now, these tensions in the Republican movement between politically focused activists and those in the IRA were by no means unique. Indeed, they were common in all wars. In the 1920s, you can find similar tensions between British military leaders such as Henry Wilson and politicians such as Lloyd George. However, the British state was centuries old and it had a very clear chain of command. The same could not be said for the Republican movement. The IRA had only evolved from the volunteers which had been formed in 1913, while the political wing of the movement, Sinn Féin, had really only emerged as a major political party after the 1916 Rising. The relationship between the two was not entirely clear, nor was the chain of command well established and agreed upon. Therefore, in 1921, as people looked forward into an uncertain future, it was increasingly difficult to predict the trajectory of the war in the coming year. There was little doubt that the Crown forces were better armed, better prepared, and seemed to be gaining the upper hand. However, as we have seen, while they had backed a policy of reprisals, the ruthless measures some in the military felt were necessary were simply not possible. However, there was no doubt that the Republican movement also had its problems. In the following months, which will be covered in the final four episodes of the series, which will come out after Christmas, the matter would be decided. Stay tuned in the coming weeks for those individual episodes on the ladies of Langollen and the interview with Teresa Hill about her experiences growing up black and Irish in Liverpool. Until then, Sloan. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.